Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today we discuss the fierce fighting taking place on the battlefront and explore what the prisoner swap involving American basketball star Brittany Griner means for US-Russia relations. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our team reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis from the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 9th of December, day 289. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Sure. Well, hi, Claire, and hi, everybody. It's been exceptionally violent over the last 24 hours, but in a very, very confined area. So uh, the reg- uh, sorry, the next region governor, Pavlo Kirilenko, Ukrainian chap, is saying that the Russian forces have been shelling the entire front line in the area, particularly around Bakhmut and Avdivka. This continues a pattern of recent well, weeks, basically, Russia seem to be uh, bashing their head against what's what's left of Bakhmut. And there's, from all the aerial imagery that we're able to see on uh, social media and online, there's nothing left of the of the city, of the town. There's just the, the shell of all the, all the buildings. But it seems to be symbolically important, which might be because the Wagner group, the mercenary group, have been rattling themselves against it for months now. Um, and that might have then morphed into a, a sort of bigger, more more um, uh, symbolic, what they see as a symbolic victory if they can take the town. Um, it doesn't actually do anything operationally, um, nothing strategically, very, very li- limited uh, advantage tactically were they, to, were they to take that area. But it does, as I say, continue the, continue the uh, approach in, uh, in recent weeks. Now, Coincident with this, we know that Russia is building an extensive trench system behind, uh, some distance behind the town of Bakhmut, and uh, not not a continuous line from uh, Hezon all the way across the country, because that would be sort of thousands of kilometres long, or, or is it 1,300, I think, along there. Um, but in, in, in significant portions, they are building um, quite elaborate trench systems, albeit very thin. Um, now, whether or not this is that they are... Um, hammering back moot in order to buy time to get these trench systems complete and try and affect sort of events on the ground ahead of any any negotiations that they would wish for and bearing in mind that Russia desperately need negotiations now they want to cease fire over the winter to uh, to replenish uh, replenish their dwindling stocks of, of personnel and equipment 
Um, so no, a ceasefire now would, would only be in, in Russia's interest, I would, I would venture. But uh, they seem to be going hell for leather in that central area of, of, um, of the Donbass, around Donetsk, uh, possibly because, as I say, it is symbolic now, but also maybe as a way, a way of buying time. So we're not entirely sure there, but they are, they are expending a huge amount of, of people and equipment there. Um, Ukraine, we're not entirely sure um, what they are losing there they're not losing ground to any great degree and certainly not around the town of Bakhmut so we don't think they they they're taking a huge number of casualties but they are they seem to be putting in the the minimum required to allow uh, Russia to keep doing what it's doing remember we spoke to John Spencer a couple of days ago specialist in urban warfare and he said <clears throat> he said look you know it's quoting Napoleon um never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake and that seems to be what ukraine are, are doing they're just holding holding enough there to keep to keep russia at bay but also expending themselves against this uh, against this sort of brick wall um around uh, around bakhmut elsewhere so not not uh, well not in not in uh, ukraine and uh, just worth mentioning because it i think it's worth noting and moving on but there's a massive fire in moscow uh, seemingly a a shopping mall there that's gone up completely gone up in gone up in smoke um that is there, there were some suggestions initially like, oh my you know, ukraine is striking in moscow i really don't think that is the case there's very dramatic imagery you'll find it all on social media um i think it is it is far too um, I, I just don't. I don't think it is is be correct to say that, that Ukraine have hit that. I mean, firstly, it's a hell of a long way, and I know they've 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 been firing. Uh, we think they've been firing these um, these old drones, the Tupolev one four one drones, recently, which hit some of the airfields hundreds of kilometres inside Russia. But to actually get into Moscow, I, I don't. I don't think that that is the case, and I don't think if they were able to do that, I don't think they'd go for a shopping mall. Um, of course munitions can go can go off course but i just think i don't want to expend any more energy on this because i I really don't think that had anything to do with ukraine but you will see those very striking images images uh, on social media elsewhere uh worth noting today's uk defense intelligence uh, estimate uh, report sort of backs up something that we've been talking about recently so they they, they note that uh, after a after a pause of about three weeks there's been a resurgence in Ukraine, Russian attacks using Iranian drones. So the, uh, as we know, the Shahid 136 uh, drone, loitering munitions. Uh, UK defence intelligence is saying that uh, Russia is likely to have received a resupply of the Iranian Shahid 131 and 136. Now, I have to say, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with the 131. I'll have a look at that. Um, but they're saying that on Wednesday, 14 Shahid 136s were shot down. That's according to Ukrainian general staff. And they were used to attack mainly the Zaporizhia and Dnipro areas. So first, second, three weeks. We we mentioned this before, saying that, that these attacks have been on the wane, probably because they were uh, Russia had, had lost so many uh, precision guided munitions and um, and these, and these uh, loitering munitions, these drones. So if they've taken a new... Uh, new delivery from from Iran, then we should expect more of these to come. However, at the same time, there's there's a, a huge effort going into pushing air defence assets into into Ukraine, and they are not massively sophisticated. They don't need to be. So a lot of the old systems, such as the the German Gepard, these uh, self propelled guns that have twin thirty five mil cannons that are just brilliant at shoving a whole mass of lead into the sky. Um, that are very, very capable against uh, well these Shahid one three six drones. They are they are low, slow, noisy. You can see them, you can hear them coming. So actually, you don't need to have a 
massively intricate or, or not that's unfair you do need an intricate air defense system you don't need a massively technically advanced and expensive air defense system to uh, to have a go at these things so if there are new deliveries then then i think ukraine are in a much better place than they were a couple of months ago of course some of these things always get through and they go bang at the end of their flight so that's ne- never take take it for granted but they, they are in a, in a much much better place got a couple of other bits and pieces to talk about um but i'll just uh, take a little pause for breath there Thank you for that, Dom. Coming to you next, Francis, as we mentioned yesterday, the US basketball player Brittany Griner has been freed today and we know her plane has touched down in Texas after 10 months in Russian captivity. What does yesterday's prisoner exchange tell us about diplomatic relations between Russia and the US? Well, thanks, Claire, and good afternoon to everyone. I think, first of all, we should say that this is a significant moment, at least as far as the US news cycle looking at Ukraine is concerned. When you have a superstar basketball player in Russian captivity, of course, that's going to make headlines for right or wrong. I think the most significant element of this is who she was swapped for, which, of course, we spoke about live yesterday as we got the news coming through on the podcast around this time. Um, Victor Bout, of course, a notorious arms dealer in the past, films made about him and... uh, as I say, a highly um, dangerous figure in his time. Now, there's rightly been some consternation today saying, how can you swap a sportswoman for an arms dealer and this be a a fair fair exchange? And whilst I totally take that point, I think it is important to emphasise that um, this arms dealer that we've been talking about has been in captivity for a long time, over eight years, I think. And so I think the, the... the the world of of arms dealership has changed a lot in that time and I think that his usefulness for the Russians is very, very minimal. It's more of a propaganda success for the Russians rather than it being anything more than that. And it's worth saying, of course, that Miss um, Greiner is at the beginning of her career or at least is, is still um, able, able to do uh, much, I'm sure. And so they have decided that this is the best bet rather than Russia having this powerful bargaining chip in the long term. So it is significant, but I think it's, you know, in the grand scheme of things for all the, all the other subjects we've talked about on this podcast recently I think it is not that significant but it is important to contextualize it in the broader terms of the relationship between Russia and the US at the moment and indeed there's been quite an interesting uh, remark made by Russia today saying that its ties with the United States were still in crisis that's a direct quote despite this prisoner swap they said and I'll read the quote it is probably wrong to draw any hypothetical conclusions that this could be a step towards overcoming the crisis that we are currently having in bilateral relations that was from a Kremlin spokesman. Ties continue to remain in a sad state. He said a Russian citizen who is basically held captive by the Americans for 14 years is to return to his country. It's to say that he's been in captive 14 years, but he's not been uh, in prison for that length of time, I don't believe. Now, it's also just worth bearing in mind as well that uh, there are other prisoners of war um, and prisoners as well that we have that are American that are British that are prominent figures that are in Russia and have been arrested there that have not been released as part of this and I think it is important just to to underline that fact that whilst it's I'm sure a very happy moment uh, for Miss Griner there are many others who will of course be very distressed that their loved ones are still in Russian captivity um, 
just again, just staying on this theme of of international relations with uh, Russia, quite significant intervention from James Cleverly, the British Foreign Secretary today, who has announced that there will be yet more sanctions on individuals in Russia. He's written an op-ed for The Guardian. He wrote for us, I think it was last week. So obviously trying to get a spread of newspapers here in Britain. And he says... So far, we have targeted over 1,200 Russian individuals, including at least 100 oligarchs and their families, with a net worth exceeding £140 billion. We've hit whole sectors of the Russian economy, immobilising Russian central bank reserves, preventing Russian companies from raising funds in the city of London, and placing UK financial services beyond the Kremlin's reach. Together with allies, our sanctions have undermined Russia's ability to rage war. Today, I will announce new sanctions on individuals in 11 countries, including Iran, Russia, uh, and he goes on and lists um, all of the others. Now, um, just on this point about the effect of these sanctions and other elements of the Russian economy, quite an interesting story buried um, in some sort of rather obscure economic analysis, really. Um, but nonetheless, I think very interesting, which is from the Bank of Russia, who have said that the, the price cap on Russian crude and the EU's oil embargo present new economic shocks according to the Bank of Russia. What does this mean? Well, in essence, that uh, the Bank of Russia is admitting that it is expecting there to be more volatility in the markets as a consequence of not only sanctions, but also this this uh, um, oil embargo that we spoke about at length earlier in the week. They're said to be mulling their options to counter the price cap, including banning oil sales to some countries. Um, there's sort of talks about them um, doing a price discount for some uh, certain countries, etc. But I think the fact is that's important about this is that this is the bank saying publicly that it is facing shocks as a consequence. And in so doing, of course, it draws attention to the fact that we've raised many, many times on this podcast, which is that, yes, it may look like the Russian economy is doing not well, but is relatively stabilised as a consequence of the war. But actually, that is a misleading fact. If you think back to that Yale paper that said that the longer this war goes on, the more and more the Russian economy will decline and will feel the impact of this and that any temporary resilience will begin to evaporate. And I think we're starting to see some signs of that with this announcement from the Bank of Russia today, because, of course, they're having to say this to their investors, to the state, to their ordinary uh, people who follow this sort of stuff, because if they didn't, it would cause real alarm. So, as I say, I think it's something to be watching there in this space. But conscious I've spoken quite a lot there, uh, Claire, so I'll, I'll take a pause. Thanks for that, Francis. I have a question for you, and perhaps, Dom, you would like to weigh in on this too. How effective have sanctions proved so far? Do we have any evidence that they have had an impact on the trajectory of this war so far? Publicly, I would say that not as much as perhaps we expected early on in the weeks and months of the war. What I mean by that is that we have not been seeing mass um, energy crisis on the same level in Russia. We've not been seeing rushes on supermarkets to the same degree that people anticipated. And of course, that is usually seen as the evidence that something is going you know, seriously wrong with, a, with an economy. Um, but as I say, I, I think it's really, really important to emphasize this fact that the Russian ruble uh, has been stabilized by all sorts of uh, dark arts that economists uh, are able to come up with when they're in dire straits. God knows there's been 
been a lot of that uh, recently in uh, Western economies, of course. Um, but it's not sustainable in the long run. And so whatever they've managed to do in the short term, I think will be uh, dampened in the long term as we uh, see the consequences of this war not only playing out on the battlefield, but in that economic space, which is why, of course, as we keep saying on this podcast, that the longer the West can continue to provide the financial and military support of Ukraine and remain consistent on not bringing Russia to the table or, or uh, on, on, in terms of uh, trying to force some kind of negotiated deal on the Ukrainians, then there's every reason to think, and I really believe this, that things will become very, very internally challenging for Putin, not only from his generals, but from the ordinary people as they begin to feel the economic impacts of this war on their day-to-day lives. And as soon as that really starts to hit home, then I think we can expect there to be a profound reaction from the Kremlin, because ultimately this is a regime that knows that it needs to follow public opinion when it really starts to shift. It's not like a democracy. You know, when things shift in a country like this, they shift quickly and they usually shift in a very violent direction. So the, the longer the West keeps up the pressure in this economic space and, and obviously all of these others, now I think there's every reason to think that we will see significant impacts there, but we have not seen them perhaps quite to the same degree than some anticipated. Thank you, Francis. Dom, do you have any thoughts you'd like to share on the subject? Yeah, well, just just on that on that theme, but right down at the sort of tactical level, if you like, down at the in individual level. So the sanctions announced today on the on the back of other uh, people and entities individually sanctioned. There's a whole list, a lot of Russians and um, Iranians today, but also many many more across across the world. So have a look at the the, the foreign office websites, Myanmar, and all sorts of other places that have, that have uh, that have that felt the heat today from the foreign office. But I mean, and these are what kind of sanctions are they? So they're travel bans and, and asset freezes. So on the one hand, you might say, well, look, look, that's not that's not going to do an awful lot. I mean, one of the guys, one of the Russian guys who was who was sanctioned today, I can't remember his name. I'll, I'll find it somewhere. But he's the uh, supposedly the commander of the 90th Tank Regiment, which has uh, been singled out for a lot of a lot of alleged atrocities in in Ukraine. And uh, and and this this guy has been. Um, uh, supposedly been enriching himself on the back of the um, well his position and then allowing his his uh, troops under his command to com- commit atrocities in in Ukraine. So you know he might never want to come to holiday in in, uh, in London or anywhere anywhere else in the UK. And you know, it's fine. But so these things might not have a have a huge effect. But you know cumulatively over the over the years and if they if they're expanded, then this is. This is just going to needle away at the uh, you know the high society in Russia for who um, for too long have, have have looked as Rishi Sunak, our prime minister, says you know looked at London Grad as a bit of a playground, somewhere to hide your money um, and all the rest of it. And so if what happens now is that these people can't send their children to uh, lovely p- private uh, schools and they can't buy up all these great estates in Surrey and have lots of sort of horse you know race horses and so on and so forth, then it, it just sort of really really just knocks back them on a, on a personal level now of course overnight that's not going to lead to mass change in the in the kremlin but if we if we need all these people long enough um and systemically enough across the world then then yeah just you know to push back and say look actually we we just don't want to hang around with you anymore you're just a little bit dull you keep going on about vodka and invasions and nato and god knows what else i mean boring so you know if we could do something there then it might it might actually work I mean, if you have a look last week at the um 
the big hit that the National Crime Agency here did in the UK uh, against an unnamed individual, name we know, but we're not for legal reasons. We're not going to be uh, not going to be talking about that. But it's subject to an unexplained wealth order. So, you know, show us how you're able to afford that massive house and that yacht and all the rest of it. And whilst this is mired in um, in legalese, because the uh, it's very easy to say, right, well, we should buy these yachts, or sorry, we should take these yachts and just sell them and send the money to Ukraine or send the money to whatever else. I mean, it, it doesn't work like that because the, these things are subject then for years of, of legal wrangling and the government will have to look after the asset. So we'll have to make sure that the, the mansion that they take over is kept in an orderly fashion and, and the yacht and so on and so forth. So they don't want to be doing that. But and And, you know, ultimately these things might be handed back to the individuals. But I'm just saying that all these efforts... Just, just needle away, and make London um, and elsewhere uh, much less permissive than it uh, than it has hitherto been, um, and it's just another front to to push back against uh, against what's happening or against the the Russian system that is in- intricately and intimately linked uh, right back to the Kremlin. The only other thing I'd say about um, about Brittany Griner is. That I think this is a, this is an example of sort of pragmatic deal making. U.S. officials were saying it was either um, accept Griner or or nothing. So the the case of the uh, the U.S. Marine Corps veteran Paul Whelan, who'd been in prison since 2018, um, yeah, okay, but President Biden's getting a lot of heat for well, why, why are you prioritising sports people over over veterans and X, Y, and Z? Yeah, that's for U.S. domestic politics to to thrash out. But it sounds very much as if it was it was this deal or nothing, and. When it comes to negotiating, you've got to be prepared to to back off your initial position. You've got to have a fallback option that you would be you would be equally delighted to take, and you'd be whooping for joy and high fiving and all the rest of it to get your to get your sort of second best option. And I think that was what what happened here. Um, whether or not there are lessons here more broadly for how to deal with Russia um, is interesting because we know from when we spoke to uh, Yulia Osmolovska months ago now, uh, who who advises the Ukrainian negotiating team about about how to negotiate, not not what should be in those negotiations, but how to negotiate with Russians. She's saying that they always hold a maximalist position. They just they want everything, everything, everything. They're very, very loud, and it just gets really you know, deafening. So you you eventually sort of give in is is their is their tactic. Now whether or not Russia would see that this is a this is a victory in that in that guy's here, they get um, they get a bloke back who's you know largely um, you know, he's been out he's been out of the out of the equation for 12 years or how long it's been since he was picked up um, in Thailand, I think. Um, but equally, I mean, they'll, they'll have their moment. Great. You know, they'll, they'll go on about how, how, how fantastic Bout is and so on and so forth. But really, if their whole system, if they're suggesting that their system is going to be immeasurably improved and they're suddenly going to get loads more weapons and all the rest of it because one guy is now available to them, I mean, that's, that's quite extraordinary. So fine, let them have their moment. But I think we should start to look at this and see whether or not there are any lessons there about how to negotiate with Russia. We should get um, get Yulia back on actually and talk to her. Um, maybe try and do that next week. But yeah, just a couple of a couple of thoughts there. Do we think that Bout poses any real threat, specifically to Ukraine? But he's he's quite a, a guy with a sordid past. Does he pose a global threat? What should we be worried about him? Essentially, is what I'm asking. Well, I mean, the the global arms trade is. Is pretty murky, and those regimes who don't want to adhere to international norms and standards make use of these types of individuals. So, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not a great not a great day for humanity if he if he goes back to his uh, goes back to his old job. I don't think it will affect Ukraine at all. I think um, you know he's much uh, smaller, and and the, the the conflicts that he has been influencing and making money out of. Um, he was the 
he's the guy upon which the 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 movie Lord of War 2005 I think was was based um with Nicolas Cage um so yeah I think he's he's a, he obviously he's a, he's made a huge amount of money but in the global scheme of of the international um arms market uh, no, I think he's fairly small beer, and will not will not impact um, will not impact Ukraine. And as I say, if it comes down to one guy, if, if if Russia is saying that they need this bloke to to ramp up their procurement mechanisms and so on, then that that says more about their existing systems than it does about this guy. Yes, thank you for that, Dom. Uh, Francis, I understand you've spent time um, reading and analysing the very lengthy Rusi report. What can you tell us about what you've found? Well, thanks, Claire. Yes, it's an extensive report, I think over 65 pages long. Um, So it's taken me a little bit of time to to work through it. It is really, really rich. And I hope Dom doesn't feel like I'm treading on his toes because I know that he's already talked a little bit about some of the content in here. But we both agree that it was worthwhile reading it in full and plucking out perhaps some of the nuggets that are buried within. So um, if you just bear with me while I read a few of these, and I know that Dom will also have some, some insights on these once I've worked through them. So The essence of this report is looking at what happened in those early months of the war, what went right for the Russians, what went wrong for the Russians, what went well for the Ukrainians, what went less well for the Ukrainians and why we are where we are and the implications of that for Britain and for other military forces. But that is actually not the the, the thrust of the report. The report really is military and strategic analysis rather than this being about the implications for Britain. So as I say, it's very, very rich, but I think... Certain quotes are worth pulling out and reading in full. So I'll go for the first one. The Russian plans for the invasion of Ukraine were detailed and offered solutions to most of the practical problems that Russia would face in occupying Ukraine. If completely executed, these plans could have succeeded. They came much closer to doing so than is widely appreciated. Although the assumption that there would be minimal resistance was incorrect, the occupation of southern Ukraine demonstrates that speed did offer a realistic path to asserting control over territory, even without popular support. Furthermore, despite the resistance of the Ukrainian armed forces, Russia had the combat power at the beginning of the war to overcome many Ukrainian formations. Beyond the shortcomings in the execution of the plan and the poor performance of Russian combat units, there are fundamental Mental aspects of the plan that must be understood to appreciate the peculiarities of Russian operations in Ukraine in the first phase of the war. So, first things first, quite a striking headline that that Russia became much more closely to success succeeding in their primary military objectives earlier in the war than many believe. I can believe that now, knowing what we know now, with the analysis, of course, that we've had of the um, heroic defense of Kiev and the crucial decisions that were made by President Zelensky and his commanding officers in those early hours of the war that really defined the nature of it in the coming days in a way that really shocked the Russians. And indeed, the report goes into more detail about what really went wrong. It talks about how the plan was drawn up by a very small group of officials. But it says that the Russian military personnel more widely, even up to deputy heads of branches within the Russian general staff, were unaware of the intention to invade and occupy Ukraine until days before the invasion. I mean, that is truly striking because we were even here at the in the newspaper world uh, were, were saying that it was incredibly likely that something was going to happen around Christmas time. 
Um, so the very fact that even Russian senior uh, figures in the military did not think that it was conceivable that an invasion and occupation was on the cards is, well, it's very, very revealing of the centralization of power within Russia, I would, I would contest. Uh, the report goes on. It is important to recognize that the Russians achieved surprise and succeeded in bringing about highly favorable force ratios on the main axes. Now, again, if you think back to some of those reports that we've talked about in the past, particularly that very, very long read uh, by the Washington Post looking at the situation on intelligence, it's really striking when one reads that, just quite how much of a shock it was for President Zelensky and for the Ukrainians and how it went against the orthodoxy of uh, of, of many of the critical intelligence services within Europe. We've talked about how Germany and France didn't believe that Putin would actually invade. Uh, it was only really the Baltic states and Britain that said, you know, were urging the international community to act because they really believed that it was likely. And of course, America as well, following some of the intelligence that they'd received from Britain, supposedly. So again, that would be aligned with what the report is saying is that it was more of a shock than some believed. But what's really interesting then is that if the, if the Ukrainians were surprised, then it was even more of a shock to the ordinary ground troops who were in uh, who were Russian, who were a part of the invasion. It says they lacked a clear understanding of where they were. Whole towns did not exist on the maps that they were used in the operations. They did not anticipate heavy fighting, nor had they established communications to report the situation accurately or repeat or receive updated instructions. Ukrainian forces found themselves bypassed and often confronted with columns of completely unprepared Russian troops. So again, this would speak to that chaos. If you think back to how utterly disparate the Russian army seemed when you had situations where you had tanks driving through urban settings, which is always a disaster. That wasn't because they were planning on taking those towns because they didn't know they were there in the first place. I mean, it, as I say, really, really um, uh, speaks to the just chaos in the Russian army in those early uh, months. Just a couple of other things to, to pick out. I know I'm, I'm going on a bit here, but hopefully this is interesting. Um, by D plus three, so that's uh, three days into the operation, like we talk about D day plus one, etc. It was apparent to Russian commanders that their plan had gone seriously wrong. It was evident that Ukraine's air defences were still operational, that the Russian ground forces had stalled, and that there was fierce resistance. Moreover, it was apparent that the activities of the special services in Kyiv aimed at neutralising Ukraine's political leadership, critical to Russia's theory of victory, were falling and failing as the security service of Ukraine identified, isolated and destroyed their infiltration groups. So again, really interesting that talking about how much of a priority it was to decapitate the Ukrainian leadership and install some kind of puppet. But the fact that Zelensky managed to avoid that and remain this iconic figure that he is today just absolutely vital as far as this report is concerned. Um, and just lastly, uh, I talked about it has lessons and implications for the West. And one of the key findings, according to the report, is that there is no sanctuary. And that's the way they put it. There is no sanctuary. The first clear lesson from this war in Ukraine is that the enemy can conduct strikes on targets throughout its adversary's operational depth with long range precision fires. Now, that's not obviously not just drones, but that is the kind of long range artillery like the high miles and everything everything else that we've seen since the invasion has been provided to the Ukrainians. But this is an innovation. This, the fact that no one is safe anywhere, even far, far behind the front lines. And that is something new. And that is something that Western armies are going to have to adapt as a consequence. And, uh, and one additional uh, finding says that the, the central thrust, the central lesson of this for uh, modern armies is the adaptability.
flexibility and essential flexibility is vital. So it says the Ukrainians succeeded because they were adaptable, especially at the tactical level and rapidly innovated new capabilities and concepts of employment as the war went on. And this is it goes on and talks about how why need NATO uh, countries need to to learn from this. So, I mean, doesn't it just sum it up that you've got a country that is you know fighting for sort of a democratic spirit and is fundamentally inhabiting one of the central tenets of a democracy, which is that you're adaptive and you're innovative and that over time can be very, very critical. And you compare that, of course, to the autocratic, centralised, bureaucratic operational system of the Russians. And it's, well, uh, no wonder that they failed. So sorry that I've talked a lot there, Claire, but hopefully that summarises the report for those listeners who don't have the time to digest 65 very complicated technical pages. But as I say, Dom is the expert on this and no doubt will have a lot of insights. Thank you, Francis. As you say, a very concise review of what is a, a very long report. Um, Dom, I understand that you have previously read the report. What, what are your insights on it? Yeah, thanks, Claire. I mean, we spoke about it briefly last week when it was uh, hot off the press, but it's on Roos's website. I'd uh, recommend everyone to go and have a, have a look at it if you, if you can. It is full of, you know, it's a proper diet of red meat stuff, but it's, it's all good. It's all good. So, uh, you know, if you've, if you've got time, then do go and have a look at it. But yeah, make sure you get a you know, wet towel wrapped around your head first. Um, I, I mean, it is, it speaks of, to me, the, the overarching thing is that um, that Russia just weren't prepared for this. Okay? Their intelligence was not good enough. They didn't know the army they were going to go up against or the armed forces they were going to go up against and the society within which they're going to be fighting. And that, and that just trickles down through, through everything. And it's, I mean, it's proper Muhammad Ali stuff. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face stuff. You know, I mean, they just didn't know what to do. When they didn't take Kiev in the first few days, they didn't have a backup plan. For a start, as we've said before, there were, there were four military entities fighting here for Russia. There was the army in the north, army in the east, army in the south, and the air force doing its own thing. And I suppose you could say five, Black Sea Fleet and you know, submarines and what have you. But but they weren't talking to each other. They weren't coordinated. It wasn't until Sergei Sorovkin came in a couple of months ago that they got any kind of overarching plan. And um, we said at the time that actually he, he made a couple of you know, what wise calls I would suggest for Russia. So pulling out of Hezon, number one, and um, and shifting to the or attacking the uh, Ukraine's infrastructure. They got to, they had to try and do something different because they were losing on the battlefield. Now, neither of those things are particularly born fruit for them. So arguably they haven't been they haven't been that good. But I think the alternative was them being absolutely wiped out. Um, so he, it's only since he's been around that there's been any kind of coordination. But what this what this report says, and and as uh, Francis brings out, and by the way, Francis, I'm going to get a Francis Durney T-shirt saying, you know, hopefully, this is interesting, um, brilliant. Uh, but over time, uh, or the Russian, the whole Russian plan was was built on on rapid advancement, taking the Hostomel airfield, for example, as a lily pad into Kiev, and it all looks great on paper. I can I can almost hear hear these plans being briefed up because it all looks fantastic and the big arrows crossing huge number of huge amount of uh, the map space and it just doesn't just doesn't work and over time if your if your whole doctrine is built on that if your whole the whole way of fighting is built on these sort of rapid advancements uh, and uh, we also know just just grinding away with artillery then time is your enemy and as francis says this this paper brings out that with the advent of drones now um being intimately linked to, to very, very low level uh, or levels much lower than they have been in, let's say, the West's recent experience of drones where we've been using 
um, Predator Reaper and all, and all the rest of it. And, you know, we see all these amazing drone strikes and blah, blah, blah. And that's you know, amazing technically, I mean. I don't mean sort of, you know, on a human level. But that's always held at a very, very high, um, very high up in the chain of command. What we've seen in, in Ukraine is that these drones are, are very available to, to many, many more units right down, right down at the lowest levels. And therefore, if there's nowhere to hide... And as we've seen, Ukraine have now been adept in linking, you know, grenades to these these drones and, and dropping grenades onto to individual positions. Might only impact a very small number of Russian soldiers at the time, but but over time, not only do those numbers add up, but that corrosive element that starts seeping into your mentality that you could be watched at any moment, that you're always uh, being uh, being spotted or spied on by a drone, and there could be a grenade coming down right now. I mean, that is exhausting and mentally draining. And so the the whole command, Russian command, and down to the individual soldiers, whether they are newly mobilised or not. I mean, being in someone else's country that they don't want you there and are very inventive at ways of killing you. I mean, it is exhausting and corrosive. And what this has done. The, these types of you know, the, the drone and the innovation and, and everything else is it's utterly denuded or made surprise very very hard to achieve R- russia i don't think have managed to achieve that at all yet um look at how effective surprise can be if done properly look at the kharkiv offensive back in when was it august when um you know, ukraine managed to punch through and then just ran pell-mell east just kept going and it was geography and their own risk appetite of, of not wanting to be overextended that that dictated where they were going to stop you know russia did not get a vote they did not get a vote where ukraine were going to stop in that in that sort of mad max dash uh, around kharkiv so surprise can be absolutely critical but if you can't achieve it because you are being watched the whole time or you can't you haven't got an effective counter drone um capability or you've you've not you, you've got your operational security wrong and you've you've not hidden where you're going and all that kind of stuff then you can, you can't achieve that surprise and, and i don't think russia have been able to do that and so this cumulatively all these little bits are adding up that time i think is in ukraine's favor um and and russia just, they've not shown any particular um intelligence on the battlefield uh big and small eye and they've just not shown their ability to adapt beyond as i say uh Sorovkin's sort of plan to get out of her zone which they should have done weeks before then anyway and i think it all comes from the fact that, that they have a very centralized uh, command structure it all goes around putin what he says goes everything has to be bumped back up the chain nobody wants to make a decision they're terrified of making the wrong decision so they'd rather not make any decision and so the whole thing just just grinds down and then all they can do is dig trenches and uh and and hope they can ramp up artillery supplies so yeah a, a long-winded way of saying i think i think a lot of these lessons from this report point to you know a bit of a bold call but you know how how this might end or certainly the direction of travel uh and yeah it's well worth a read thank you both very interesting to hear your insights on that one if anyone has any suggestions for what we should put on a Dom Nichols slogan t-shirt, please do let us know on Twitter. Francis, I understand you have a few updates on the situation within Russia itself. Thanks, Claire. Well, if Dom gets a t-shirt that says, hopefully that was interesting, then I promise I'll buy one that says he knows his onions with an arrow pointing at Dom. How's that? Um, but yes, so 
in Russia itself, I, I'm aware that we've neglected this a little bit in, in recent days. So I just wanted to, to turn uh, our lens onto it briefly. Now, I talked earlier on, of course, about the impact economically on the sanctions on Russia, which I think uh, we are starting to see some quite significant impacts when you get the Russian central bank admitting to this. Um, but just something else that, that happened, which I thought was very striking. Uh, so in the last 24 hours, we've seen footage of President Putin uh, at an award ceremony for Heroes of Russia hosted at the Kremlin. And it's a very bizarre interview, one of the most bizarre of the war so far, I think it's fair to say. Now, there's been a lot of speculation online that he may be drunk in the interview. I'm not going to go as far as to saying that because I'm not intimate enough with watching Putin's speeches more when he's in a more relaxed format, shall we say. Um, but he does appear to be very relaxed. He's sort of swaying around a little bit. And the most striking thing about it, given the subject that he's talking about, which is, uh, as I'll say, pretty shocking, is the fact that he's drinking sparkling wine whilst he's talking about it um so he's sp speaking about the uh, attacking of civilian infrastructure and essentially he admits to the, the fact that russia are doing this yes we do that he says but who started it there's a lot of noise about our strikes on the energy infrastructure of a neighboring country this will not interfere with our combat missions so quite a big admission there and actually no doubt something that lawyers uh, on uh, the hague are making a note of that he's admitting to attacking civilian infrastructure because as i say that is now quantified as a war crime by many metrics um but as i say the most striking thing about this is the fact that he's on film alone swaying talking with a glass of sparkling wine in his hand talking about a war where tens of thousands of Russians and Ukrainians, tens of thousands for both sides, have died and are dying in the most hideous circumstances. And I cannot imagine any Western leader who would be uh, filmed talking and about such subjects, first of all, uh, not behind a podium, but second of all, not least of all, with a glass of champagne or some other sparkling wine in his hand. I mean, it really is quite sickening, frankly. Um, but not only that, uh, it's remarkable how few people seem to have pick up, picked up on this, which I just think speaks to what we expect from Putin, what we expect from politicians in Russia, because it certainly is inconceivable to me that you wouldn't you would see a prime minister or, or a president uh, do that. So I just wanted to draw attention to it. No great revelation in the interview, but nonetheless, one that's causing a bit of consternation this morning. And just one other very small story that I don't want to, again, appear is too big in the grand scheme. But again, I want to draw attention to these stories because I think it's important to do so. So a Moscow court, I think it's about an hour ago, so it is a breaking story, have found a Kremlin critic, Ilya Yashin, guilty of spreading false information about the killings of civilians in the Ukrainian town of Bucha. Of course, somewhere very familiar to this podcast. Um, uh, David Knowles visited there um, on the trip to Ukraine. And uh, we've got actually a very extensive analysis piece on Butcher coming out over the Christmas period, an episode dedicated to that, so do look out for that. And of course, it's well known already, the, the absolutely horrific events that took place there. Um, um, but uh, he, this uh, opposition figure, uh, guilty of distributing deliberately false information about the use of armed forces of the Russian Federation. We know that um, Mr. Yashin is alleged of talking about what occurred in Butcher and describing it in, in, my, in ways that were condemnatory of the Russian actions. And as a consequence of that, he is now, uh, well, 
uh, going to going to go to prison. Uh, he's already, of course, been arrested, um, and uh, there was a two-hour delay to the verdict. We understand, but interestingly, there were two hundred supporters who came to um, to cheer him on. We don't yet know what the scale of the punishment will be, um, but. As I say, I just think it's really, really important to draw attention to these instances of very, very brave Russian civilians who know the consequences of them speaking out here um, and yet are willing to do so because they see what is occurring as wrong. And as I say, he wasn't just alone in the courtroom. There were supporters outside of it who, again, will now no doubt be on Russian watch lists as a consequence. And as I know I've said before, um, I don't want to over-egg the, the, the opposition within Russia, but it is there. And I think it's vitally important that we do draw attention to it when there is a story that justifies doing so. Thanks so much for that, Francis. And for our listeners who haven't yet seen the previously mentioned footage of Putin drinking what appears to be champagne, uh, that will be on our social channels this afternoon. So that's one to look out for. Um, We're coming to the end of our time this afternoon. So if I could come to you first, Dom, for your final thoughts, what would you like to leave our listeners with this afternoon? Yeah, so something I thought about mentioning in the news, but I just haven't been able to to source it correctly. But it looks as if there are going to be some Turkey-sponsored talks this uh, tonight, or maybe the announcement tonight, um, between the US and Russia. Now, this might be in relation to prisoner exchanges on the back of the things we've been talking about today, or or more broadly. Um, so keep do keep an eye out for that. And very interesting that the role that Turkey is playing here in terms of regional power, Turkey is is absolutely flexing its muscles and has done for a number of years now. But this war has really accelerated Turkey's position. They're absolutely pivotal, not only because of the geography and the access access to the Black Sea, obviously, but just as, as a regional player for um, as as Russia's power in the um, in in Russia sees as, as her near abroad is is waning, particularly with the CSTO, the, the Collective Security Treaty Organization. So a really interesting role being played by Turkey and and the latest of that looks like it's going to be um, hosting these joint talks this evening or certainly over the weekend between um, between the US uh, and Russia so keep an eye on that. Thanks for that Dom and over to you Francis what are your final thoughts for the day? Well thank you Claire I just want to go back to the speech that I was talking about earlier on from Putin, for many listeners, I'm sure it will have shades of Boris Yeltsin uh, at the end of his tenure in office. But I was very struck by an observation made by a listener who DM'd me on Twitter, who made, I think, a really astute observation that we, or Russian leaders, should I say, never have very long life expectancy. And I think the average life expectancy in Russia is 65 to 70, something like that. Now, Putin, of course, is already passing that now. And so one of the central calculations that Western leaders have been making, and we've talked about on the podcast, of course, is this worry that who would succeed Putin? You know, perhaps we need to offer Putin an off-ramp because we might get somebody even worse. But actually, does that conjecture hold water if as some have speculated, Putin's health is actually not that good. So I thought it was an interesting point because actually I think there is a lot of assumptions that Putin may well be if he wants to be there another five, ten years. And as a consequence, there will be some officials in the West who will say, look, we want this war over. We need to dangle something in front of Putin that means that he's willing to uh, leave Ukraine, whether that means that he gets to keep Crimea, certain territory, etc., then it's worth it rather than us getting some extreme ethno-nationalist who we really can't deal with who might press the red button, say. But actually, you know, if we 
If we were to do that, and then in six months' time, Putin's off the stage, what does it matter? So, as I say, a bit of a roundabout argument, this, but I just thought it was an interesting point that hasn't been picked up before, which is actually that by Russian standards, Putin hasn't got long left to go anyway. Um, now, that may not be the case, of course, but, you know, if you're just looking at the historical view. And so as a consequence, we need to think very carefully about what we may or may not give Russia in the years ahead and maybe even months ahead. Who knows? Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Emily Hill.